0: For those of you who have been a part of this summer's series, we have been teaching from the book of Ephesians. Walking through the book of Ephesians, it is so rich with truth and application, and uh, we've entitled this series, Blessed. And I think already you have discovered why uh, we have decided to entitle this series, Blessed. For those of you that simply haven't been uh, able to be here up to this point, a quick review. Uh, This is a letter, an epistle, obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit spirit but written by the apostle paul he wrote this as what we call a prison letter a prison epistle meaning he was prison at rome when he wrote this letter to the church at ephesus where was ephesus as you'll see in modern day turkey uh, asia minor area uh, uh, of the in the in uh, old times uh, bible times now called turkey and there is ephesus And uh, by the way, as a quick uh, side note, if you ever get a chance to travel that part of the world, stop by Ephesus. It's one of the most well-preserved, restored uh, in terms of artifacts and ruins of the original city of Ephesus that you find. And it is an incredible experience. Uh, There are some of the examples of some of the things, even the huge Colosseum, still there in Ephesus. And um, once you see what is there, it it really causes... uh, Uh, both the book of acts as well as the uh, book of ephesians to come alive so this is the outline the broad big picture outline we've been following from the book of ephesians it began with a greeting a salutation from paul to the church and then he began to emphasize the believers wealth in the first three chapters the wealth of the believer this is an emphasis on our heavenly calling on our position who we are in christ and what He has provided for us. And then number two, the second section is the believer's walk. Tonight, we begin this section. This is a very practical section talking about the everyday walk and life of a Christian. And then finally, he wraps up by emphasizing emphasizing the believer's warfare in the sixth chapter. Notice, please, once again, in much of Paul's writings, he begins with positional truths or theological doctrinal teaching and then he shifts to a practical side so we find chapter four as kind of that right in between transitional section of the book of ephesians he's been talking about our heavenly calling now he's going to talk about our earthly conduct he's been talking about position now he's going to talk about application and practical truths both are very vital but now he begins To base these challenges and these practical concerns, he's basing it on what we've already studied so far in the book of Ephesians. By the way, I couldn't help but just think of this today as I was reviewing my notes for this evening. There's a a book, little tiny book written many years ago by a guy named, a Chinese uh, leader named Watchman Nee, and it was called Sit, Walk, Stand. I don't know if any of you ever saw that little booklet, phenomenal little booklet with great truths. And it really is all about the book of Ephesians. And the beginning of Ephesians talks about sitting has to do with what? Our position in Christ. And then it has to do with walking. Now we're in chapter 4. And then it wraps up with standing. It makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Sit, walk, stand. And so uh, I couldn't help but think about that and how that fits so well with what we're studying. So we find ourselves in chapter 4 tonight, beginning in chapter 4. And uh, hopefully we can uh, make some good progress this evening through this chapter. I have placed on the screen the, the scripture text. I'm using the New International Version tonight. And so let me read it for you. I'm not going to read the entire chapter of four, chapter four, because uh, likely we will not be able to complete chapter four tonight. But we'll, um, we'll read at least the first 17 verses. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, (coughs) excuse me, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says When he ascended on high, he took many captives and he gave gifts to his people. Verse 9 What does he ascended mean? except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach the unity, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And then we'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of Him who is the head that is Christ. Amen? So uh, let, me just, let me just finish verse 16 and we'll stop there, pause there, and uh, continue on from this point next week. From Him, the whole body joined held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work now what we want to emphasize tonight is the walk of the believer notice that he begins with this emphasis on this first verse where he says basically this, he, he introduces himself once more, as he already did in the beginning of chapter 3. He introduces himself as the prisoner of the Lord. Remember what we said the other week about that last week? We said he saw himself not as a prisoner of Rome, not as a prisoner of Nero, but ultimately he had God's perspective, which was what? He was captured by the Lord Jesus Christ and doing his work. So he looked beyond his earthly circumstance into his real purpose. And once again, he says, as a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you. It's almost, I think, as if he's trying to say, this is the basis upon the sacrifice that I'm making and the example of my life is such that I can challenge you to live a different kind of life. Look what I'm doing. Look what I, the sacrifice that I've made to follow after Christ. Surely you can do that as well. That's the basis of this challenge. And then he basically says, I'm challenging, I'm exhorting, I'm urging you to do what? To walk or to literally to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Notice that the first emphasis is he's basically talking about our lifestyle, the way we live. The emphasis on walk has simply to do with your walk, has to do with your life, the way that you conduct your life. And he's saying as Christians, we need to walk a certain way. It's interesting the word worthy here that he uses. It's interesting because it comes from an original Greek word, which is the word axios. It's a word that, 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 that we get our English word axis from. It's a word that has to do with like a balance beam. And what it's saying is, listen, if you're going to be a Christian, you need to make sure that your walk matches up with your talk. You can't just talk it, you've got to also walk it. It can't just be a a profession or a confession. There has to be something in the way you live that looks like, acts like, behaves like Jesus. And this is The word that he uses here, let's make sure that our life, our walk is worthy. I kind of look at this first verse and the emphasis on a worthy walk is kind of the overarching emphasis for a walk. He's introducing the subject of a daily practical life walk and he says it needs to be worthy of our calling. Some people want to, I think, interpret this verse wrong when they talk about it has to do with your specific calling. I believe this verse has to do with the general calling of every Christian. All of us are called to the Lord, amen? Some people say, oh, well, that's just for certain people to have a calling. Oh, no, all of us are called to lives, amen, to live for Christ. And so we need to live and walk in a way that matches our Christian calling. And then he goes on in the next verse. Verse 2, to begin a specific emphasis, as he does through the rest of chapter 4 and into chapter 5, we're going to look at different kinds of walks. The first thing he tells us to do is to walk in unity. Walk in unity. Let me reread this again. He says in beginning in verse 2, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love and make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. I'll stop there for a moment. But you can see that this whole section verses 1 through verse 16 have to do with the concept of walking in unity with one another. Did you know that it's God's purpose that when as Christians that we show people and one another the unity the unity that he desires to be with us as we walk in the body of Christ. Did you know that division and strife and disagreement has been the downfall of many, many Christians and many churches? In fact, it has probably done more to disrupt the witness and the testimony of Christ than anything else, hasn't it? How many times have you heard someone use as an excuse that they don't want to follow Jesus? They say, well, look at, you. look at the Christians over here. They can't even get along. Look at them. They're fighting here. They're divided there. Look at this and that group and that group. And they use it, granted inappropriately and incorrectly, but they use it as an excuse not to follow Christ. And so we are being admonished here to walk and to live in unity. He breaks it down in verse 2 this way, provides for us four specific graces for walking in unity. Humility. He starts with humility. That's a good place to start, amen? The Bible says that we shouldn't be proud. For God opposes the proud, but He does what? He gives grace to the humble. Haughtiness, arrogance, pride, there's no room for that as Christians. If we're going to call ourselves Christians, followers of Christ, we cannot live lives of arrogance and pride. We must choose this walk of humility because guess what? It's going to lead to unity. These are four specific virtues that will lead into being able to live in unity with one another. I don't know about you, but I found it hard to walk in unity with people who are proud. Have you ever found that out? I mean, it's hard to walk in unity with people who think that they really, you know, they know everything or they have it all together, and they're, they're not very humble. And the next word he uses here is the word gentleness, and some translations use the word meekness. This is a very interesting word. Maybe you've heard it described before, but it's a word in the original language, which is the, word, which is the Greek word praetis which literally means not what we might normally think when we think of the word meekness, but really gentleness is a better word, but I'm not sure even that captures the full meaning. It depicts an animal that is wild, has amazing strength and power, but has come under the discipline and control of the Master. Picture a wild horse. A wild horse that's never never been... Ridden, never been bridled and all of a sudden that strength and the power of that of the of the, the if you will the horsepower within that animal that now becomes bridled by a master now the strength and the power of that horse can be productive before it was just wild energy going everywhere all of a sudden now it's bridled under the master's control that is a word that it using here the holy spirit uses to describe what our life ought to look like we need to develop this proudness this 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 meekness this gentleness of spirit that doesn't mean being weak god doesn't want his people to be weak he simply wants us to be under control controlled let him be your master and let him produce a god-controlled life and the third word here grace that's being used that helps us to walk in unity is the word patience by the way there's different words in the New Testament for translated patience this one sometimes is translated long suffering it's an interesting word the Greek word makrothumia which always has to do with patience that relates to people sometimes we just have to be patient with circumstances but sometimes we have to be patient with one another amen anybody have that test uh huh I, I, I know. I know all about it. And, and that patience that we have to live out with others uh, literally speaks to the, re- the, the reluctance. We need to have a reluctance to take out uh, revenge or to avenge others for wrongs that they may have committed. Humility. Gentleness. Patience. And then lastly, he mentions the grace of forbearance. What does forbearance mean? I don't really know another way to describe the word forbearance other than this. It simply means to be putting up with one another's idiosyncrasies. Putting up with one another. And the only thing that can motivate that is love. This quality of enduring forbearance with one another, motivated by love, is something that will produce unity. Can you imagine Christians that live in humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance wouldn't you think that they're probably walking in unity and harmony with one another? If we could get husbands and wives to apply these graces, don't you think that they would be living in harmony and unity? I believe that that is true. Paul goes on. He challenges us to more of this emphasis on unity. And he says we ought to keep the unity. We need to keep unity, and we have to work on it. Look what he says here in uh, verse 3. Make every effort, the NIV says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And then he goes on to tell us about this, the the, the oneness of our faith. But let's look real quickly at this idea of keeping the unity. Notice that the Scripture is telling us that we have to work at it. One translation uses the word endeavor. Endeavor, or work at keeping The peace, the unity that God wants to have between us. This actually suggests that there's something existing, pre-existing. There's a unity that's pre-existing. And it's often confused me. I thought, well, I, I don't know how we can work to keep it if we've never had it. Y'all know what I'm talking about? But the unity that he's talking about is the unity that God gives us simply by being members of the body of Christ. The moment that we are born again, we are in a unified body of believers in, in in a perfect world. God sees us as a part of his one body. And based upon that oneness, he's saying, get along. Work hard. Sometimes we don't think peace Suggest that we don't work you've got to work at keeping peace you've got to work at not having arguments sometimes you've got to work at getting along with other christians that you don't agree with at times am i right all right so we have to through the bond of peace determination is required here the spirit notice the emphasis the holy spirit is the agent of this unity and by the way when it adds peace uh, to this idea it says keep peace Endeavor to keep, make every effort to keep the unity of Spirit. How? Through the bond of peace. I like what one writer said. He said, peace is the clasp that ensures the God-given unity doesn't fall apart. Kind of like a bracelet with a clasp on it. If you don't have that clasp closed, it'll fall off, right? So it's the idea that God gives us the bracelet. We need to add the clasp of the bond of peace. It's a bond. It's something that holds in place the unity that god wants us to keep let's look at the next phrase very important one it says there is one body and one spirit and he goes on to list all of these different ones one body one spirit one hope one lord one faith one baptism one god and father of all who is overall through all and in all i think he's trying to get a point across wouldn't you agree what is he saying he's saying that there is a unity and a oneness of our faith. This, in other words, this idea of oneness is the basis of our unity with one another. He's saying, look at all the oneness, look at all the unity that is in our Christian walk. Look at these things. There's one body. Listen, there is only one body of Christ. This is speaking of the big body of Christ. There are individual churches, but there is one big body of Christ. There's only one hope. And it comes through Jesus Christ. Amen? There's only one Spirit. Listen, there's only the Holy Spirit. There's not many other spirits that bind us together. It's just the Holy Spirit. Speaking of the unity of the Trinity, one Lord, one God, one Father, one faith. There's only one faith, one baptism. Now, there actually are multiple baptisms in the New Testament. It's the baptism into the body of Christ. There's water baptism, New Testament water baptism. and there's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Then there's the baptism of suffering. But clearly here, he's talking about that identifying mark of water baptism that all believers, through obedience to God's Word, need to be water baptized. Water doesn't save us, but we're baptized in water because we are saved. Amen? And this is all illustrative of the fact that there is oneness in the Christian faith. Trying to make a point, based upon this, you and I ought to get along. Based upon that, we ought to work hard at maintaining unity. In this same theme, interestingly enough, of unity in the church, he begins to outline ministry offices. Five specific ministry offices that he lists for us, starting in verse eleven. And it extends in the purpose statement in verse 12. He says Christ has done this. We don't have time to delve into this. But he says Christ, the same Christ that descended into the earth, also ascended and was exalted to heaven. And when he ascended, he distributed gifts. Distributed grace gifts. So sometimes we call these the ascension gifts. Sometimes we call these the gifts of Christ. These are gift ministries that only he can distribute and he gives them by his grace out. I thought we would just take a moment because this is something I haven't really taught here in our, uh, in our young church, but I thought it was an opportunity to do so since we're walking through Ephesians. Can we just look at these very quickly? Apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. There's a lot of confusion about what these are. And so I just want to clarify and, and kind of delve into this a little bit more detail. I'd like to use this um, slide, the following slides, to help you get it. And this way you'll always get them in order, too, by the way, all right? If you can use your hand, and you will notice that there is correspond. We just use this as a kind of as a, as a nice little teacher. We can use our hand in each of the five fingers of our hand, Represents a different gift of ministry the first one is the apostle that's the thumb right here And the second one we'll go through them all and then i'll come back and explain then the second one is the prophet apostle Prophet evangelist middle finger ring finger pastor little finger teacher I also like to use the g's to help explain what these do first of all apostles govern prophets guide evangelists gather pastors guard and teachers ground can't push it too far but i think you understand the point what these are about so let me explain why this relates well to the hand and we'll just go through them one by one very quickly first of all is the thumb finger and that has to do with the apostles and by the way if you've signed up to receive the pdf files as you do on your phone or Uh, by email i've included a lot more of my notes this weekend that i have time to delve into but i did it just for your own learning sake and if you haven't signed up for those but you would like to jamie who's our wonderful uh, media uh intern will help you out he's in the back and he can help you out after the service what is it about the apostle that connects to a thumb the thumb is the is the finger that actually is the foundational finger of the hand the foundational finger and that's exactly what apostles do they lay foundations they're a foundational ministry did we learn in chapter 2 it says that the church is established on the what on the foundation of apostles and prophets remember that so apostles are those who God has called and sends forth literally the word means one sent forth apostolos one sent forth but it implies someone who sent forth with authority And is sent by that one who gives the authority. It's also described by Paul as a master builder. He describes himself as an apostle, as a master builder. Apostles are those who start ministries, who plant local churches, and then help to reproduce and equip others in the church setting. Like I said, I've got a lot of information here that we won't have time to deal with tonight. The second finger is the prophet. Why do you think that might be the prophet? <laughs> do you see the correspondence there? The prophet, many times, it, it can be thought of in this way, but in reality, prophets do one, of two, one and one or two things. They can do both or one of the other. Prophets are those who are receive a special grace from God that Christ has poured out and given. But they are called to foretell and forthtell. Foretelling is the side of prophetic ministry that predicts. We see examples in the New Testament. Agabus was a New Testament prophet, and there are other examples as well. So there is a foretelling that can be corporately, nationally, sometimes even to individuals. Prophets can foretell. It's not something they do, but something the Spirit can give to that person, and it's usually something that prophets operate in pretty consistently. But they also foretell. In other words, they make declarations by the Spirit that are anointed by God to declare God's truth. A prophet sees what God is doing, hears what God is saying, and speaks it forth and releases it on earth. That's the role of the prophet. Third one, the evangelist, the middle finger. Do you know why I like to think of this as the evangelist? Because it sticks out, I guess it depends on your hand. But most of the time, that finger, middle finger, will stick out a little farther. Uh, some of my fingers are a little weird too, so it's okay if yours doesn't. But um, I think in most cases, the middle finger will be longer than the other fingers. The idea is what? The evangelist is doing it, reaching out. Reaching out and beyond, going out beyond. It is the one that is anointed and gifted to go into the world, go into the harvest fields. He is one that imparts a spirit of evangelism. He trains and teaches people to evangelize and has this gift just to, I mean, they can get up and evangelists can get up and sing Mary Had a Little Lamb and people get saved. They don't have to do much. They just just get up and just like, people just get saved. Y'all ever known someone like that? It's an amazing gift. Always wanted to be an evangelist, but anyway, I'm not. That's an evangelist. By the way, I just a quick, quick note, the apostle, prophet, and the evangelist are all translocal ministries. In other words, they're ministries that move. The apostle is predominantly one who's always translocal. In other words, they're not just residing in a local church. They're moving all around. Same thing with prophetic ministry. They can operate in the local church, but primarily as a mobile ministry, as is an evangelist, although you could have an, a resident evangelist for a season. And then we have um, uh, pastors, and the G word for pastors is the word guard. And I like to think of it as this finger here because it's the ring finger. It has to do with the idea of devotion and caring for the flock as the shepherd of the flock, the pastor. By the way, this is the only place in the New Testament where the, it's translated, the New Testament translators decide to use the word P-A-S-T-O-R. It's simply the word shepherd. Is the word "foiman" in the Greek. It's simply the word shepherd. It's always used as shepherd, and they didn't like that, couldn't handle that, and so they decided to come up with this other word, pastor. Today we're kind of stuck with it, so I've given up trying to change it over the years. It's, we're stuck with it. It's pastor in our, in our culture, but it literally means to shepherd. It is the local church shepherd, the one who cares and gives. This is a, always a residential gift. And by the way, some people argue that the pastor... And the teacher function go together. And there's arguments to be made for that. My experience is that I think, it, it, I think all pastors have to be a teacher. I think there only are pastor-teachers, appropriately. But you can be a teacher and not be a pastor. That's my own philosophy and, and theology on it. So the teachers do what? That's the little finger. And the, little, and the reason for that is because teachers teach the little ones help to ground the little ones in the faith. And it's a nice way to remember it. And so, uh, once again, uh, those are the gift ministries of the church. Stay in with me again. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. And all of those are gifts that are not by choice, but simply by God's grace. Hopefully you can even identify. I personally believe that these gifts are still in operation today. I believe they've gone away. I believe they're still in operation. And in fact, the reason I believe that is based upon Ephesians chapter 4. First of all, we notice that the purpose of these gift ministries is to do what? To equip. Verse 12, to equip his people for works of service. The purpose, the job description, if you will, of these leadership gifts, all five are leadership gifts. The purpose of those gifts is to equip God's people. They're all equipping. The word equip is a beautiful word. We don't have time to go into great detail tonight. The word "katarismos," which which sometimes is used in the New Testament to mean to mend. When it says that the disciples were mending their nets, the word mend, there's the same word for equip. It's also the same word that's used in classical Greek for, for a medical practice of mending a bone that's been broken. To mend a broken bone is the word for equip. Part of the ministry of these leaders is to help mend people's lives, to help make sure that things come back together, and they're equipped. category the resource means to prepare something for use, to prepare something for usefulness. Whatever it takes to prepare them, whether it be healing, restoration, whether it be teaching, instruction, discipling, mentoring, whatever it takes, all those are equipping functions, and that's what these gift ministries. Are supposed to do. And they're to equip who? Who's the recipient of the equipping? The saints. Believers. That's where the equipping needs to take place. And as a result of being equipped. What happens? The saints are involved. In the work of ministry. It's not just. The pastor. The evangelist or whoever. It's the church. The body. The believers. Are involved. Active. Every believer is a minister. Involved in works of ministry. And. We build up the body of Christ, as it states in verse 12. How long is this supposed to last? Hmm? Can I just read it to you? Until, verse 13, until we all reach unity in the faith, that's not unity of the Spirit, that's unity in the faith, and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature. In other words, once we agree on everything, I would argue that we have a ways to go would you agree with you know what I'm saying we have a ways to go don't we the body of Christ at large surely does not have the unity of the knowledge of Christ we have not reached full unity in the faith we are not fully mature he says and become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ the fullness of Christ are we heavens no we have a long ways to go And part of the way of getting there, the maturing of the saints, is the activation and proper functioning of apostles and prophets and evangelists, pastors and teachers. By the way, these are not gifts that you volunteer for. These are not things that you say, oh, Lord, I'd really like to be this. These are things that come by calling, and you must have the grace to do it, or else it never works. The only reason that Joyce Meyer is such an anointed teacher is because she has the grace of a teacher. The reason Jack Hayford is such a great model pastor, an exemplary pastor as well, his gifting is to be a pastor. He's pastor teacher. Just look at the man's life and ministry. And we could give other practical examples, couldn't we? So I think we have help, hopefully helped you to see through this section that the scripture is calling us to a walk of unity. We're getting ready next week to move in this section on the walk of unity. Uh, in maturity that we need to walk in maturity not just walk in unity with one another but walk in maturity and we'll see some other areas that we need to walk in next week praise god a lot to learn amen there's a lot in the book of ephesians that we can learn and it's simply uh, the scripture simply wraps up in that section i love this phrase from him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love As each part. All of us are parts. As each part does its work. All of us have a work to do. May God grace us to do that. Would you stand with me as we pray and conclude the service tonight? Can we just use this as a moment to pray that we'll walk and live in unity? Amen. The scripture that we began with tonight in Matthew chapter 18 Verse 19 and 20. Verse 20 says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I'll be in their midst. The previous verse says, where two of you will agree in prayer. The word agree is the word that means symphony. Symphony. Probably been a while since you've been to a symphony. Maybe not. But I can tell you this, in a symphony... There's a whole lot of different instruments. And they're not all playing the same notes. Am I right? But they're all following the same script. And there's a conductor. And when you hear the amazing result of different people playing different instruments, different notes, under the direction of a conductor and following the same music score, what happens? Wow! What a sound. Am I right? That's symphony is the unity that God wants to create. May I challenge you tonight as we pray, play your own instrument. Whatever instrument God's given you, play play it. Play it well. Do the best job you can. Play it loud, but play it in unity with everyone else. And the result will be a symphonic noise that will bring glory to God and will bring many to Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, tonight we're truly grateful to be members of the body of Christ, to see how you do work in all, through all, filling all. Oh, Lord, we're so thankful that we can partake of the one body, one faith, one spirit. Tonight we determine to dwell in unity because we know that it is there that you command a blessing. We want to walk under your full blessings tonight we pray that you would fill us afresh with your spirit send us out lord into the harvest fields into the highways and byways and where we work and where we reside use us make us lord a witness for you lord continue to work within our own local church as you do in the entire body of christ that we're a part of we speak blessings fullness of blessings meeting every need of every person who is here tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.